This is the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. Every day this week, I've received an email and a text page several times a day alerting those of us who practice medicine at my hospital that there is a critical blood shortage. This typically occurs at the summertime when most people who donate blood, that are that is students, are at home or away or at vacation, and blood banks and trauma centers find themselves every year at this time in an absolute crunch uh, to maintain adequate levels of blood to deal with emergencies as well as deal with an elective surgery. The pages and emails that I've received have been to remind clinicians only to use blood products as necessary. And this has really alarmed me to some degree, thinking that people perhaps are using blood products as if they're not necessary, and that uh, only should we evaluate our Uh, indications or thresholds for uh, transfusion of blood uh, during times of uh, shortages. It's my considered opinion that we should consider every unit of blood under great consideration and only give blood when we deem it absolutely necessary. So the topic of this podcast is blood conservation uh, in patients in the intensive care unit. What are our, our transfusion thresholds, if we still use that draconian term, and what are some of the roles of these medications that help magically stimulate the production of blood? Anemia is a common occurrence in critically ill patients, and by the third day of ICU admissions, almost 95% of patients have some element of anemia. Corwin has written a significant uh, volume of literature on this, going back to Critical Care Medicine 1999, Journal of Critical Care Medicine 2001, and Critical Care Medicine in 2004. This anemia that these critically ill patients uh, have will persist throughout their duration of both their ICU and hospital stay if we give them transfusion of red blood cells or not. Corwin and colleagues back in 2004 published a uh, paper in Critical Care Medicine, which was an observational study of 4,892 patients admitted to ICUs in the United States, and they looked at specifically the years 2000 and 2001. This is the CRIT study. And they found that 45% of patients are still transfused on an average of almost five units of red blood cells. The results show that the initial red blood cell transfusion tends to occur early in the ICU stay with ongoing red blood cell transfusions throughout their ICU stay. The mean pre-transfusion hemoglobin level observed, that is the transfusion trigger, which is a term we all like to use, was 8.6 grams per deciliter. A comparable value to that described in earlier reports of uh, Littenberg and Corwin going back to the mid-90s. Vincent did a, a similar study and published it in JAMA in 2002. Their patient population was in Western Europe, and this is known as the ABC study. They collected data on a little bit over 3,500 patients admitted to intensive care units during a a two-week period in late 1999. 37% of patients received a mean of 4.8 units of cells while in the intensive care unit. The the mean pre-transfusion hemoglobin uh, level in that study, or the transfusion trigger in that study, was 8.4 grams per deciliter. These studies suggest that transfusion practice in response to anemia of critical illness has changed a little over the last decade and is consistent with across the critical care community. This is particularly surprising given the scrutiny into which transfusion practices have been subjected over the last decade. 
and the data available regarding transfusion risks and efficacy. In particular, in a prospective randomized study of critically ill patients, Hebert and colleagues published an article in New England Journal of Medicine in 1999, and they demonstrated that maintaining the hemoglobin levels in the range between 7 to 9 grams per deciliter is at least as equivalent in some patients and perhaps even superior to maintaining hemoglobins of greater than 10 grams per deciliter with red blood cell transfusion. This is particularly um, in uh, patients who had an Apache score, Apache 2 score of less than 20 or their age was less than 55 years of age. Now I'm looking, um, and I'm taking a lot of this from an article that Howard Corwin wrote in Anesthesia Clinics in North America in uh, 2005. Red blood cell transfusions are commonly used in the critical care setting in an attempt to increase the oxygen delivery to the tissues and turn improve tissue oxygenation, especially in shock states. This is the idea of providing more boxcars. Don't use red blood cell as a volume expander. We have other solutions as volume expanders. We use blood as a way to improve oxygen delivering. So let's just look at it from that perspective. We give blood because we would improve oxygen delivery by providing more boxcars. Well, as Corwin will show in this article in uh, Anesthesia Clinics, which is a great uh, overall review, are we actually obtaining our desired uh, objective? The rationale for this therapeutic approach is that an increase in hemoglobin will increase the oxygen-carrying capacity of blood and therefore provide more oxygen delivery to delivery-dependent tissue. That is, we're providing more boxcars. Studies regarding the efficacy of red blood cell transfusions to increase tissue oxygen uh, consumption and to improve clinical uh, outcomes have not consistently demonstrated that this therapeutic maneuver, that is the transfusion of blood, is accomplished by an increase of oxygen use at either the whole body level or at the level of the individual organs. So by giving blood to improve oxygen delivery, that might not actually be happening. Keep in mind that the blood that we give patients from the blood bank is not normal. Um, This is a great series of questions that we typically see uh, in January on general surgery in-service questions. Um, It's the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. What are some of the different things about bank blood versus normal blood? Well, we know, for instance, that blood that's uh, prepared with uh, citrate phosphate is depleted of 2,3-diphosphoglycerate, or 2,3-DPG. And keep in mind that 2,3-DPG will allow what? It allows oxygen to be released at the peripheral tissue. And a decrease in 2,3-DPG will cause uh, a movement of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. It's what I call a left shift. Keep in mind that once you, you know, you can load up oxygen on blood all day if you want. It doesn't make a difference if you can't get the blood released at the peripheral tissue. That's where we want the oxygen released. So the components that cause a shift or a left shift of your oxyhemoglobin dissociation oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, things like uh, a decrease in the 2,3-DPG, even though you may actually be getting the oxygen uh, molecules to the peripheral tissue, if they're not being released from the hemoglobin, it's not doing the patient or the tissue any good. American colleagues, JAMA, 1993, did a study of septic patients receiving red blood cell units stored for more than 15 days developed those patients who received that blood that was older than 15 days developed more evidence of splanchnic ischemia than those receiving blood stored for less than 15 days. A follow-up study uh, um, 
by Fitzgerald and colleagues, uh, published in Critical Care Medicine in 1997. They used a rat sepsis model in this, demonstrated that transfusion of fresh red blood cells acutely increased systemic oxygen uptake, whereas a transfusion of red blood cells stored for 28 days failed to improve tissue oxygenation. The CRIT study, uh, done by Corwin in Critical Care Medicine 2004, has found that the average age of red blood cells transfused in the United States is 21 days. And next time you get your uh, unit of blood, look at its expiration date. How many times have we given blood to very critically ill trauma patients or surgical patients and noticed that the blood transfuse, or the blood's expiration date is perhaps within the next day? Let's go back to that Herbert article in the New England Journal of Medicine, 1995. It's probably the best evidence available regarding the efficacy of blood transfusion among critically ill patients. It's a randomized control trial. They noted that these investigations compared a liberal transfusion uh, strategy, that is a hemoglobin level of 10 to 12 with a trigger of 10 grams per deciliter, with a restrictive transfusion therapy uh, strategy, keeping the hemoglobin level between 7 and 9, and, and in the restrictive strategy, the uh, transfusion trigger, which is a term I really don't like, is 7 grams per deciliter. Patients in the liberal transfusion arm, those are the ones where the trigger was at 10, received significantly more blood than those in the restrictive. That would seem to make sense. The overall in-hospital mortality was significantly lower in the restrictive strategy group. That's those who had the 7 grams per deciliter trigger, although the 30-day mortality was not significantly different. However, in those patients who were less ill, Apaches less than 20, or younger than 55 years of age, the 30-day mortality was significantly lower for patients in the restrictive transfusion group. Therefore, a, a restrictive strategy is at least equivalent and possibly superior in some patients to a more liberal transfusion practice. Going back to the ABC and CRIT studies that we talked about earlier, red blood cell transfusion is not without risks. Those studies found that red blood cell transfusion was independently associated with worse in clinical outcomes. We can sit there and go for perhaps an hour talking about the various studies that show increased risks of infection in trauma patients, uh, worse outcome in cancer patients, and higher rates of metastatic disease. A significant association between the number of red blood cell transfusions and risk of subsequent infection has been reported in patients after trauma, burns, and a variety of elective and medical, uh, excuse me, uh, elective and emergency surgical procedures. Hill and colleagues uh, reported a large meta-analysis in the Journal of Trauma in 2003, and they demonstrated the relationship between uh, allergenic blood transfusion and post-operative bacterial infection uh, using 20 peer-reviewed studies published between 1986 and 2000. There was 13,000 uh, patients uh, in this group, uh, 5,200 in the transfused group and 7,900 in the non-transfused group. The common odds ratio for the risk of infection associated with red blood cell transfusion in this meta-analysis was 3.45, with 17 of the 20 studies demonstrating a p-value of less than 0.05. These results provide overwhelming evidence that red blood cell transfusion is associated with a significantly increased risk of postoperative bacterial infection in the surgical patient. Similarly, in critically ill patients, Taylor, um, in Critical Care Medicine 2002, has also demonstrated an association between red blood cell transfusion and both nosocomial infection and mortality. So giving blood is not a panacea. What can we do to help reduce the output of blood or blood conservation in the ICU? 
In critically ill patients, almost half of all transfusions and almost two-thirds of those for, are for non-acute blood loss were performed with, for either no identifiable indication or low hematocrit levels alone. We're transfusing a number, is basically what that says. Transfusion may be in a large part driven by individual, here we are, transfusion triggers rather than specific physiological indications. This is something I beat into my residents, and if you're one of my residents listening to this and you haven't heard this, take note, is I don't like people getting transfused based on a number. Um, If we have to have an arbitrary number, I take care of typically burn patients, and they're usually young and they're healthy, and my transfusion trigger, if if I could have one, would be seven. But I'll tell the residents, if you're giving a unit of blood, tell me the physiological reason why you're giving blood. If there's a PA catheter, for some reason in my ICU, I'm not a big fan of those either, but if you've got oximetric data to show that the patient's running oxygen debt, or they have a lactic acidosis, uh, or persistent tachycardia, what is your physiological reason why you're transfusing? In the CRIT study, a low hemoglobin level was cited as a transfusion indication in 90% of the red blood cell transfusions. 90% of the transfusions in the CRIT study were based solely on a number, not on a patient's physiology. That's a pretty alarming number. The uh, transfusion trigger used uh, either consciously or more likely unconsciously was a hematocrit level of approximately 27, so correlating to a hemoglobin level of 9. The similarity of pre-transfusion hemoglobin concentration in the CRIT and ABC studies tends to support the concept of a transfusion trigger. Now, the Consensus Development Conference on Perioperative Red Blood Cell Transfusions, Perioperative Red Blood Cell Transfusion, in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1988, almost 20 years ago, and the American College of Physicians, um, and, and the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1992. So, not some recent publications, but one publication that's only 19 years old and the other that's 17 years old. They advocated that empiric automatic transfusion thresholds be abandoned in favor of practice of red blood cell transfusion only for defined physiological need. So, keep in mind. For almost 20 years has been in the literature, avoid transfusion triggers. Transfused based on physiology. So it's clear that even if a more conservative transfusion practice was adopted, that's if we go to the trigger, um, and say the range of 7, um, as suggested by Herbert, uh, there would be significant reduction in the number of red blood cell units received by critically ill patients. Phlebotomy i.e. us drawing labs, is a major uh, factor contributing to anemia and the need for blood transfusions in critically ill patients. Smoller, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1986, found that half of their ICU patients received blood transfusions were phlebotomized more than one unit of blood. The ICU patients described in their study averaged a phlebotomy uh, rate of 65 milliliters per day. I'm actually surprised it's that small. Um, in another study by uh, Von, Von Ossen, I apologize if I mispronounced your name, in critical care medicine in 1999, found that patients treated in the ICU for more than three days, diagnostic phlebotomy accounted for 17% of the total blood loss. In the AB side, ABC study, they demonstrated average phlebotomy volume of 41 milliliters, which had a significant positive correlation to organ dysfunction. That would seem to make sense. 
Bert Chernow in critical care medicine in 1991. This is 16 years ago. In 1991, he directed uh, towards reducing phlebotomy blood loss to include use of small volume pediatric size tubes, elimination of arterial bloodline discard, elimination of standing orders for laboratory tests, and uh, altering test ordering behavior and daily feedback, which is something a lot of ICUs have adopted. The use of small pediatric tubes, though, has not been adopted, and this has been shown to reduce decreased phlebotomy blood loss in the range of 33 to 47%. Now what is this anemia of critical illness? Over the last several years it's become clear that the view of anemia in the critical ill is simply a result of excessive phlebotomy by the quote medical vampires and that is not the case. And we're quoting Burnham in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1986 now. Red blood cell production in critical ill patients is not normal, and decreased level of red blood cell production are also involved in development and maintenance of anemia observed in the critical ill patient. Over 90% of IAC patients have low serum iron levels, total iron binding capacity, and a low iron to TIBC ratio, but have normal or more usually elevated serum ferritin levels. Now let's not look at this in a silo because there may be some um, uh, immunological protective response to the elevated ferritin levels. Some would argue that iron is the anti is the uh, microbial currency of the body. There does appear to be a blunted uh, erythropoietin response observed in critically ill patients, and this appears to be inhibited by the EPO gene by many of the inflammatory mediators. Therefore, anemia of critical illness is a distinct clinical entity characterized by blunted EPO production and abnormalities of iron metabolism, similar to what is commonly referred to as the anemia of chronic disease. As such, the bone marrow of many of these patients may respond to the administration of exogenous EPO despite their critical illness. Hmm, this is somewhat bordering on controversy. Now, going back to Corwin's initial, initial study, uh, in a randomized placebo-controlled trial of 160 patients, therapy with recombinant EPO resulted in a reduction of almost 50% of red blood cell transfusions compared to the placebo. In this trial, patients with hematocrit of less than 38% on ICU day 3 were given uh, recombinant erythropoietin at 300 units per kilogram daily for 5 days, followed by every other day until ICU discharge. Despite receiving fewer red blood cell transfusions, patient in the EPO group had significantly greater increases in hematocrit levels. This initial trial resulted in a subsequent trial. And in the second one, they looked at 1,302 patients. And these patients were given a dose of 40,000 units weekly. All the patients received a three weekly doses, and patients who remained in the ICU on day 21 received a fourth dose. Treatment with recombinant erythropoietin resulted in a 10% reduction in the number of patients receiving any red blood cell transfusions and a 20% reduction in the total number of red blood cell units transfused. Similar to the earlier study, the increase in hemoglobin from baseline to final level was greater in the recombinant EPO group. So taken together, Corwin then concludes that recombinant erythropoietin therapy in acutely critically ill patients results in a decrease in red blood cell transfusion and an increase in the hemoglobin level. Now time to be a little bit critical and uh, review this uh, study a little bit further. The transfusion um, trigger in this Corwin study was 8.5 grams per uh, deciliter, which, given the information we've already presented above, is a little bit disappointing given the TRIC trial that we know that patients with conservative triggers of 7 grams per deciliter perhaps do better than maintaining a transfusion trigger of, say, 8.5 or even 10. Therefore, Corwin in this 
second study could have achieved a transfusion reduction just simply by decreasing his transfusion threshold to 7 grams per deciliter. This is clearly less expensive um, uh, way to reduce the use of transfused blood than uh, administering erythropoietin. In an editorial published shortly after this Corwin article in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the editorialist uh, said a formal cost-effective analysis is needed, although the results are likely to depend largely on the parameters identified in the prior work, uh, the cost-effectiveness of HIV testing for donated blood, and so forth. Jeff Carson, who wrote the uh, editorial in New England Journal of Medicine, or excuse me, in JAMA, following this Corwin article, does a little bit of a cost analysis. He says, the costs involved are straightforward on the surface. Ten patients had to be treated with three doses of recombinant erythropoietin at $1,200 per patient, $400 per dose, to save the cost of one patient being transfused at $400 per unit of blood during the 28-day period. The known adverse effects of transfusion are known to be minimally, uh, uh, only minimally affect the cost, but there is a study now that does that. But there's more on erythropoietin. Recently, at the Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, meeting, um, uh, there was uh, results that erythropoietin uh, reduces or halves the mortality in critically ill patients, uh, basically by 48%. The results of the EPO trial uh, EPO-3 trial reported by uh, Corwin, and they had 1,300 patients randomized to placebo or uh, erythropoietin, 40,000 units once a week for four weeks. Patients were stratified based on trauma groups, non-trauma, medical, non-trauma surgical groups. Uh, the length of stay had to be at least three days, and the patients were older than 18 um, years of age. Uh, the main baseline hemoglobin level was 9.6, and uh, Corwin uh, was... Uh, commented that there was no transfusion benefit in patients who received EPO. Okay, that's why we're giving it. However, there was a significant improvement in hemoglobin, which was observed day 8 and continued to improve throughout the study. So it improved your hemoglobin, but it didn't improve your need for transfusions. The 29-day mortality was 11.4% in the transfusion group and 8.5% in the EPO group, with a 48% reduction in mortality. Um, Dr. Corwin said this reduction was unexpected because it was not observed in the EPO-1 and EPO-2 trials. The mortality ba- benefit with EPO was probably due to its non-hemopoietic effects. Um, it, it is a side of kind, and he postulates the anti-apoptotic um, uh, effects may provide some tissue protection, which is a significant, uh, as Kierkegaard would say, a leap of faith. We don't have, this is an observation, that we don't have a cause and effect of what caused this difference in observed mortality. One could certainly say that the transfusion um, group had a, a higher mortality, and we know that there's a lot of evidence that suggests uh, that transfusion uh, adversely affects outcome in critically ill patients. That could be another uh, spin on uh, this uh, report. However, uh, in all fairness to Dr. Corwin, you know the data has not been published, and, and I don't have uh, full access to it. So I'll look forward to the manuscript um, just to learn more about this. Now, what about erythropoietin in cancer patients? Uh, certainly we should be more cautious uh, after uh, something presented at the American Association of Cancer Research back in 2000, uh, back in April in Los Angeles. Uh, they announced that a clinical trial using uh, Darbo EPO, um, which is Amgen, excuse me, not Amgen, it's uh, uh, Arnisp, uh, and cancer patients were uh, not receiving cancer, uh, not receiving care for chemotherapy, which is an off-label use of the drug, found that, that its use was associated with an increased number of deaths, and this resulted in the FDA adding a black box warning uh, to all marketed erythropoietin products. Uh, the study was concluded in 985 cancer patients with anemia who were not receiving chemotherapy to see whether uh, the Darbo-epoetin 
uh, could reduce the need for red blood cells transfusions in this population of cancer patients. The Darvo epoplin um, <laughs> did reduce the need for blood transfusions, but the difference was not statistically significant. 176 transfusions were needed in the uh, Darvo epoplin group versus 250 in the placebo group. At the same time, a subsequent analysis showed a higher number of deaths in the treatment group. 136 deaths, 26.4%, um, um, in the uh, um, um, Experimental group versus 94% in or 20% deaths in the placebo group. And subsequent to this, the FDA issued a black spot, a black box warning. The next study we're going to look at is a, a study from Critical Care Medicine um, by uh, Kenneth uh, Shemrock and colleagues. The title is "Number Needed to Treat and Cost of Recombinant or Human Erythropoietin to Avoid One Transfusion Related Adverse Event in Critically Ill Patients." Uh, and this was in Critical Care Medicine in 2005, uh, volume 33, page 497. This was a really neat study because what they did is they looked at the incidence of adverse events, uh, viral and, and, and others, uh, allergic reactions, transfusion event uh, incompatible, incompatibility errors, and so forth. Uh, and what would be the number of patients required to make... Um, uh, the, the use of erythropoietin uh, giving an advantage, basically. And the main finding of their study, this is from their, their discussion, it says, the main finding of our study was that 5,246 patients needed need to be treated at their particular institution at a cost approaching $5 million to avoid one transfusion-related adverse event event as a result of epotherapy. These findings were magnified greatly when the outcome of interest was avoiding a serious or likely fatal transfusion adverse event. Greater than 25,000 patients needed to be treated at a cost exceeding $25 million. Although the direction of the findings was expected, their magnitude was surprisingly large. Well, it seems to make sense, though, when you actually look at, for instance, Table 2 of their study. They look at the estimated risks associated with blood transfusion. Transfusion-related acute lung injury, incidence of all events per million, 185. Uh, the incidence of a serious event per million of trolley, about 37 per million. The incidence of a potentially fatal event per million, 0.3. Delayed hemolytic uh, reactions, 110 per million. Um, acute hemolytic uh, reactions, 113. Hepatitis B virus, uh, you're looking at 4.9. Hepatitis C, 3.6 per million, um, and, and so forth. So in the context of um, the incidence of adverse events, uh, in order to have a significant impact on mortality, you'd see that the cost of uh, epotherapy in order to get a cost-benefit advantage of avoiding transfusions uh, is significantly expense expensive, and I'm sure there's going to be additional studies like this in the future. So in summary, we've looked at we really need to question our transfusion practices in intensive care units. Uh, the idea of a transfusion uh, trigger, if you still subscribe to that notion, should certainly be uh, s uh, lower than 10. And, and patients who are younger or have um, Apache scores less than 20, certainly approaching 7. The literature, the new literature, and I say new, I'm being sarcastic, only in the last 17 years, 18 years, have people advocated transfusion based on physiological parameters, and we should certainly be doing that as much as possible. The idea of erythropoietin is clearly not a done deal. Uh, there's been very, um, the data, there is data out there that shows it reduce uh, the need for transfusions, but when you look at those transfusion triggers that they use in that study, they're perhaps higher than they should be. And does that actually improve uh, mortality? Again, um, 
Um, we have to continue to follow that. Um, the uh, cost of erythropoietin is significant, and the benefits of the patient may be few. And in order to uh, uh, see a benefit in a, perhaps even a single patient, we may have to spend millions of dollars on erythropoietin. Certainly during the summertime, there is a blood shortage out. If you can get out and, and uh, donate blood, by all means do that. And if you're not donating blood, please be judicious in your use of blood. My name is Jeff Guy. This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. You could visit the uh, podcast homepage at icrounds.com or my own um, uh, webpage uh, for our residents with other educational articles. And most of the articles quoted here are on that site. And that's www.burndoc.com. Thank you and have a nice day.